0: Hello, my name is Celia Hirsch, and I'm a volunteer with Igniting Change, an intentionally tiny but outcome-mighty organisation based in Melbourne, Australia. Igniting Change has walked alongside many individuals and organisations making a difference, usually working with very thorny issues in decidedly unsexy areas. It's unlike any charity you may have previously encountered, and its catchphrase is, See the person, not the label. What we are seeking to do with this podcast is introduce you to the people of Igniting Change and the people we work alongside. Our guest today is Charlotte Jones. She's the General Manager of the Mental Health Legal Centre of Victoria. Hi, Charlotte. Hi. Until I met you, Charlotte, I had no idea that this service even existed. Could you tell me a little bit about what it is that you do?
1: Well, the Mental Health Legal Centre started 30 years ago in Victoria. Its primary purpose is to support people who are experiencing mental health issues with co-occurring legal problems. So those can be anything and everything that people can imagine from being trapped within a psychiatric facility and not being able to leave right through to how you got an infringement when you were unwell and you don't even remember doing it.
0: How do people find out that you're even
1: there? Well, we advertise widely in the hospitals. Um, So there are notices up in all of the psychiatric units about us. There's notices up in most of the prisons as well. And alongside that, we advertise in the area community mental health services and a lot of health care workers and those kind of organisations are aware of us. So
0: they often refer in. Is it a kind of legal aid for people who have mental health issues?
1: Yeah, there would be an element of um, there's some crossover into what legal aid do, but a lot of people are excluded because of a means test. They'll check how much money you have and say, oh, you can't access this service. We don't do that. We apply it to everybody equally. The
0: only identifier is that you
1: have a mental illness.
0: So, what are the sorts of things that you see on a regular basis?
1: Well, our phone services hears from consumers regularly about problems within wards, about problems with the police, about problems in trying to report a crime particularly where they've been the victim and they go to the police station and as soon as they become aware they have a mental illness, they're not taken seriously. And that goes right through to things like applying for the disability support pension and not being able to get it because nobody can verify your mental illness. And you don't like the labels, particularly the psychiatrists give you in relation to that.
0: So I gather that there'd be plenty of people who'd just throw their hands up and say, I'm getting nowhere.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's one of the biggest problems that our community faces, that everything is too hard, from trying to apply to a benefit, to trying to get support, trying to get help from a hospital service. And what we have at the present in Victoria is basically a crisis response only. And unless you're in severe crisis
0: nobody's there to really help you. When they come to you, what do they talk about in terms of discrimination and that kind of negative attitude?
1: A lot of things are based within the community that people just don't understand what the illnesses are and what they mean. I suppose one of the most common misconceptions is that mentally ill people are violent. That's probably the one that pervades the most. Most mentally ill people are anything but violent. You're much likely to be harmed by somebody in your family or for some other reason than a mental illness. And most people with mental illnesses are really isolated. So they are incredibly cut off from society. Um, Often they don't tell people. Often they don't explain what's wrong. So those kind of complexities in just trying to interact day to day
0: mean that the little things become impossible. How much do you blame the media for that perception of mentally ill people being violent?
1: I think... It's more complicated than that. I think people always look for a scapegoat when something happens that they can't understand or they can't explain and mentally ill people are a really good way to do that. I think that's quite common throughout society. They'll just look for something that they go, oh, that's different, we can blame that. Oh, she's crazy. He's mad. They're really easy labels to throw around rather than that person has bipolar. At the moment, they're pretty unwell, but in four weeks' time, they're absolutely fine and... Strangely enough, they can be Stephen Fry and <laughs> working away
0: perfectly yeah. happily. If we open the newspapers again, I'm, I'm referring to the media because you might be under the misapprehension that because a footballer has revealed he has depression or, or a celebrity has talked about her struggle with an eating disorder, that somehow mental illness is becoming mainstream, that our attitudes towards it have softened, that we are understanding and open. Is that anywhere near the case? No,
1: um, I think in really simple terms, all that does is highlight the problems that people have who don't have that access to that financial support in trying to get help with a situation long before it reaches crisis. When you often hear about things like footballers or people who have support systems around them, they have a manager who will then find a psychiatrist or a counsellor most people don't have any of that so they have to go out and find all of those things and almost self-identify i think i have depression i think i need some help where do i start who do i ring oh apparently i'm entitled to 10 sessions under medicare of therapy most people won't actually take that because the medicare rates are so low and haven't changed for such a long period of time so I can't access that unless I can top up the payment. I can't top up the payment because I'm on New Start, which means I'm already living below the poverty line. So for a lot of our clients, those are just the basic things that you're trying to overcome before you even get into the complexity of a well thought out diagnosis around what happens and whether or not your mental illness is changing, which is the other thing that people don't seem to understand. You may well have one mental illness as a youngster, but you can have a completely different one in old age. And they're not the same. They're not related. You can recover from one and then encounter another one. And society doesn't seem to at all grasp those kind of concepts yet.
0: And I gather that that even seeing an, a psychiatrist, let alone getting an appointment, is well beyond the financial means of many people. Yeah. I so mean, what do they
1: do? Generally, they close the doors and hope the crisis passes. They ring services like ours um, and say, what can I do? Who can I ring? They'll often ring organisations like Lifeline, um, particularly if they're at the point of suicide. And then ultimately what will happen is we will have to make a call to Triple O and Triple O will go out and do what's called a welfare check.
0: And generally they'll then be taken to a hospital under what's known as a Section 351. How did you know how to deal with all of this? How did you know how to navigate These sorts of issues?
1: I really don't know. I suppose I started off as a young lawyer um, in East London and just encountered lots of different levels of complexity and started to learn about how different systems fitted together. And from that, I tried to figure out what was the best thing to do for clients who were incredibly complex. I then worked with an organisation called St Mungo's that dealt with people who were homeless on the street. And they had a lot of psychologists working for them. And through that, I learned how to tap into people at the right times, how to just say, today's not a good day to have this chat. We'll do it another day. And learning that it just didn't matter.
0: It's not an area that I could imagine people would be hammering down the doors to get into. What makes you stay in it? Surprisingly, people do hammer down the doors to get into
1: community legal centres. It's a really complex, difficult place to work, but it is immensely rewarding because your clients... Are amazing and they surprise you every day their personal acts of kindness are often immense um, and the lengths they will go to to say thank you are unbelievable and it makes you feel like you actually made a difference that day so I think for most of the lawyers that I work with they have sort of a two-pronged attack which is if I can make this situation better for this client today that's brilliant but how do we change the system to make it better for 100?
0: What would a normal day look like for Charlotte Jones?
1: Um, Is there (laughs) such a thing? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I don't know. Um, The average month is a couple of trips into the prisons to deal with um, whatever the projects are running out there and to check everything's working well. There's a regular set of catch-ups across our multidisciplinary practices, which means catching up with the social workers, the financial counsellors, the lawyers, making sure everything's working well together, where have we got a hole, where have we got a gap, and which clients we have in particular crisis at that point. And what can we do? That might be something really simple, like somebody's got a huge amount of rent arrears and we need to fix it and quickly. Who can we call? Who can help? Or it will be something bigger and more complex, like a piece of strategic litigation and where do we go with it?
0: So at the moment, I guess the spotlight of the Royal Commission into Mental Health in Victoria is exposing a lot of issues that perhaps many people wouldn't be aware of. How involved have you been in that commission? The Royal
1: Commission itself has been... Very embracing of the mental health service um, providers at this point. Um, So it's very heavily embedded with the hospitals and the services and the doctors and the delivery at that end of the front line. We've had very limited contact with them. We have put forward a lot of proposals to them around how they access consumers in particular. Um, And we've also put in a very lengthy set of submissions, one in what we call the forensic area, which is people with a mental illness within the criminal justice system. And one that specifically sits around the provision of care for the individual who's generally within the mental health system.
0: Do you think we'll see some form of lasting change as a result of the Royal Commission? I think
1: because of what we're referring to at the moment as the perfect storm, I think we will see lasting change. With the Aged Care Royal Commission, the Mental Health Commission in Victoria, the Royal Commission into Neglect, Abuse and Exploitation at a federal level of people with a disability and the Productivity Commission's report, I think through all four of those we will see lasting change. What I'm hopeful of is that we will see a change where we start to see people's mental illness as a journey and to take them on that journey we need different systems in place. That doesn't mean a hospital or a psychiatric ward but a place where you can go and say I'm in trouble, can you help me now? It feels very punitive at the moment. I think it is very punitive and I think the entire system is very punitive and it's based on a very much a last resort method this is the last place we can think of to put you and this is where you'll go and then we'll release you with nowhere for you to access where you can get support it's also very pharmaceutical treatment is normally seen as a pill or a tablet when most people have got extensive histories of trauma and need a lot more than a pill or a tablet
0: so does that mean that that we need more therapists who are working on Medicare, what, what are some of the wish list items? We'd
1: look at more counselling service and more therapists, um, particularly working on Medicare. We'd look at more support services, particularly peer-led, where consumers who've been through the experiences that many of the others do support people to get back through all of those problems. Um, We also need support workers in things like disability support pension. We need to underpin how people access services. Um, And I think we can also look at technology and some of those things as to how they can support individuals. Everyone's got a phone, haven't they? Pretty much. And, you know, imagine if that phone could help support you through getting to appointments, making visits, um, saying, oh, I, I really don't feel brave enough to do this today. Could I access a social worker? Some of those supports aren't the things that you think of. They're the things that are really quite small. But, you know, for somebody who doesn't go out anymore, somebody to go to the library with them, somebody to be their friend, to support them doing the little things. And in that, the community is so important, and particularly the peer community of mental illness users.
0: Mm. And things like, I guess, nutrition, exercise, the sorts of things that are terribly hard to do on your own if there were peer people involved in those sorts of things as well because that yeah, would make a difference
1: yeah i think they would i think the other thing to remember is that where people have been raised in trauma and had particularly traumatic childhoods basic skills have never been learned so things like learning how to cook a meal for yourself and understanding what's good for your body and good for your health and your mental health um, have been lost so they actually need this really basic level of education around how to take care of themselves. Yeah, and then home economics. Yeah, it's really simple stuff. And that doesn't take, you know, somebody who spent seven years at med school to do it. But what it does take is people who have immense time, patience and care and who don't resort automatically to a coercive approach to life. What is very common for mentally ill people is their world is basically a carrot and a stick. If you don't do this, we will do that to you. And ultimately, as with children, nobody responds well to it and they just end up failing and the cycle continues.
0: The suicide rate is pretty alarming.
1: The suicide rate is horrendous. It's not something we at the Mental Health Legal Centre deal with a lot. Um, Suicide calls are normally directed into other organisations. We sometimes get them. They are rare. If we do, we have strategies in place in how we deal with it. But in terms of young people, the suicide rate is, quite frankly, frightening.
0: Do you think that there should be some kind of nationwide intervention into this terrible problem?
1: I think youth suicide um, requires some very careful thought. We have particular problems within community. Um, We have particular problems within urban areas and social media. Um, And I think the responses need to be coordinated across the states because it's silly for all the states to spend money that they all need to spend when they could do it jointly. And I also think we need to look at what happens on the pathway to suicide. How many attempts are made to reach into services and what fails we try and operate a policy that we call very simply no wrong door. If you come to us, it can't be the wrong door. You can't, you can't, can't just turn send away. you somewhere else mm. without making sure it's the right place for you to mm. go. And what I feel that happens a lot of time with young people is they try and reach out to services and it doesn't fit. And nobody quite appreciates how hard it is to, to ask act for help. Mm. And that first time you do it, particularly when you're young, you are so vulnerable. As I think most of us will remember being that vulnerable mm. and that scared. So I think it's really important that when we build and design services, we build them with that premise in mind.
0: You are talking before about increasing the understanding and awareness of of mental illness across the community. Part of the problem, I think, also is, and I don't know if you have seen this, is that perhaps families themselves don't deal very well with that person. Or, Or if they do, they've tried, and they've tried to a certain extent, and then they're cut loose. Have you seen a lot of that? Or?
1: Yeah, I think for a lot of the clients at the Mental Health Legal Centre, a lot of them are alone. Um, they don't have carers and they don't have carer support. What about friends? Friendship groups tend to fall away the more unwell somebody becomes um, and people don't know how to respond to people. And we don't have very strong role models of that. If you look across TV shows, mental illness is generally something where they go and they have a bit of treatment and they come back. It's not it's an ongoing thing mm. and how do you navigate the ups and downs of it with them? I think the only time that you do see those kind of scenarios, you need to have that, that understanding of what supported decision making is for people and I suppose that's the concept that is the most important. You've got to support people who are mentally unwell. It's not to tell them how to do it. If you're not mentally unwell and you stuff up, you stuff up if you're mentally unwell and you stuff up, you stuff up because you're mentally unwell, mm. not because you're going to stuff up anyway. It's that, that's the bit that society's got to get over and that's what you've got to get over with your friends.
0: Is there any evidence that we are getting somewhere near?
1: I haven't seen any evidence that things are improving. I think the numbers that are coming out are really scary about the access points into mental health. Um, but I also think that people are starting to realise that you shouldn't just put up with things. And as we've got more open with Royal Commissions into a variety of problems and a variety of things across society. You know, 30 years ago, we didn't accept that children could be sexually harmed. Now we actually understand that's a real problem and that there are ways for children to report, that children should be listened to and heard. I think it will take the same kind of seismic shift around mental illness. And for people to understand... Actually, somebody's just unwell, and when they're fine, they're fine. And when they're unwell, it's just a really bad time. And like anybody, if they were having chemo, how supportive would you be? So if they're having to get their meds sorted out again,
0: maybe a little bit of that support would go a long way. It's a really deep issue, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and I think for the people that are experiencing it, when you're in hospitals and confined spaces, it's remarkable how few people go in. I suppose it's the thing that always amazes me. You walk into a really busy entrance to a public hospital and you will find invariably the psychiatric ward will be at the furthest away point from where you are when you enter the hospital. In case you catch it. Yeah, you might just, (laughs) Yeah, and (laughs) You might turn crazy. (laughs) It could touch you. (laughs) Um, And then you will make your way invariably to the very back of the hospital and um, the very darkest, most complex bit of it. And once you get there, you'll suddenly realise there are no visitors there. Mm and it's fascinating. Um, I sit regularly on psych wards and there will not be any visitors for anybody in there. It's really bleak, Um, but the clients aren't. They are remarkably hopeful. And if there's one thing that gives you absolute hope, it's when you meet somebody who comes and sees you and says, because of this, everything changed. Because Mm. you did this, everything changed.
0: In a similar vein, what was your first experience with igniting change?
1: My first experience with igniting change was that the mental health legal centre had been completely defunded, so we had no funding base, we had no income, and I think that was well, when I first met you, actually. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and we were <laughs> happy times. <laughs> we were three months away from the doors closing, and um, igniting change facilitated contact with the most amazing group of supporters who made sure that we rode out that first year were then able to build programs to support people, to continue our prison work, and to make sure that we developed new programs that met the changing nature of mental illness. So they were supportive of our homeless persons project, which works with Bolton Clark nurses to put um, people who are on the streets or facing homelessness in touch with a lawyer.
0: And what are Bolton Clark nurses?
1: Bolton Clark nurses are what was the old Royal District Nursing Service. There are 52 of them who work with the homeless in and around Melbourne, and we meet with them every month, and we provide a lawyer for them every day. So the nurses just ring us up and say, this is what we need, this is where we need it. So they can talk to people and find out the issues that they're suffering. Yep, and if it's a legal problem that's holding them back from accessing support and services, we figure out that legal problem for them. People get very anxious that particularly when they're on the street, that there's outstanding warrants, they're going to be taken to prison, this is going to happen to them. If they talk to a lawyer, they'll get taken to a hospital and they'll be detained. And we reassure them, nope, none of that's going to happen. Um, Let's find out what the problem is and let's fix it and figure it out so that we can actually get you in some way back in touch with services. So Igniting Change basically were your lifeline? Yes. Without Igniting Change, we would have gone under. And they started a... Ball rolling from an organisation that had, um, I think it was one hundred and twenty thousand dollars of income in my first year. This year, our turnover will be eight hundred and fifty-seven thousand.
0: That must be hugely gratifying.
1: It is hugely gratifying. Um, but I think the thing that is. Most important is that the team at Igniting Change, every step along the way, when I took a big step or I developed a program or an idea, I'd come in and talk to people and they'd go, oh yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, you should give that. i go, that, 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 that should work. And if it failed, it was fine. But the support meant that I never did anything
0: alone and that was huge. And you didn't worry about coming in with an idea that might have been a fizzer? No. Never. Not that they would have, Charlotte. Just <laughs> on the off chance no, They just,
1: they, it, was, it was the whole thing around just having people that you could talk to that weren't always in your world who just said, well, why don't you think about it like that? And you just suddenly go, oh, why didn't I think of it like mm. that? And the team at Igniting Change made that happen. You
0: mentioned earlier that you were a, a, a lawyer, a baby lawyer mm. in the UK.
1: What was your upbringing like? It was probably a little bit different to most people's. I was... Raised by my mum, who divorced my father when I was seven. Unfortunately, um, my father was a raging alcoholic. um, And my sister once said, My sister said to me when I was leaving the UK, the place she felt safest as a child was the psychiatric ward because dad couldn't harm us there. Mm. That's where he was contained which always stuck in my head when I ended up taking on the Mental Health Legal Centre. I thought, I wonder whether I've got some residual I feel safe on a psychiatric ward, which kind of worries me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, it's lucky
0: for the people you work with that you do.
1: Yeah, I think I had quite an unusual upbringing um, in the sense that my mum was incredibly strong and incredibly driven and decided that education would set us free. So all three of us made sure we got a really good education and that meant that we then had choices and that was her goal. She was right. She was absolutely right. Unfortunately, she died when I was 23 mm. and strangely enough, so did my father. Um, mm. So they, um, they had a profound impact on, I think, the decisions that I made and the way in which I chose to practice law. And where you are now. Yeah definitely.
0: I think you in some ways have to have some experience of trauma in your own life to have that empathy within your field.
1: I think your childhood shapes a lot of the decision making that you do as an adult. And I think one of the easiest things for me was that nothing ever really scared me as a lawyer. So what was the worst that could happen? was kind of my philosophy going in. it couldn't
0: be worse than what you'd already seen. It was,
1: it couldn't be any worse. So, and surely I could make it better than half the outcomes that I'd seen as a child growing up. You know, I have friends who I went to school with who are doing life in prison. I have friends who will probably spend much of their life incarcerated. But I also have friends who are remarkably accomplished because I got to be a lawyer. So I have a diverse background and knowledge that kind of places me well for no matter what comes through the door at the (laughs) MHLC. So So I don't think
0: anything will shock me. Do you love being a lawyer?
1: Yes, I do. I love the power that it gives you when people think that something can hurt them that can't.
0: Or when they think that all is lost. Yeah.
1: The law can be a brilliant shield and it
0: can protect you, particularly used well. It's very inspiring Charlotte I, I hope that you don't ever stop practicing what you do because you you're pretty remarkable not pretty remarkable extremely remarkable thank you and I always ask everyone who does the podcast what's the one thing that igniting change has taught you be brave every time you make a decision and you you get racked with angst about it don't be brave run it That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening. And remember, see the person, not the label.